Hello, everybody. Welcome back to In It for the Long Run, the podcast for the lessons we learn when we commit to long-term journeys. You already know who I am by now. This is Travis Okumba, your host, checking in live from Chicago. And as usual, I'm joined by the ever-effervescent Claudia Fermanchik. Claudia, hello. How's it going, Tranis? It's going great. Uh, it's still sunny over here in Chicago, so I think we had a little bit of a heat wave this past week, but it's it's cooling off to a comfortable 75. So very happy to be both inside or outside. Honestly, no complaints. A very chill Sunday. How are things going with you? Yeah, we had like a little bit of some cloudy, rainy weather, but the sun has circled back. It's actually quite warm today. I had to reinstall the AC, so (laughs) (laughs) So we have that on, so it's helping, but yeah, heat's back up, so Seattle just, you know, teasing us a little bit, so. Teasing you guys, yeah, just just giving a little bit of everything to keep you on your toes. I think that's a good good transition into our first segment of the podcast, which is our race updates. If our listeners have a good memory, the last thing that Claudia and I challenged ourselves to was to write on our hand, you got this, and high five multiple people along the run path at any point in the past couple weeks. And so both of us stuck true to it. I actually did mine this very morning, and I I definitely have some thoughts. I will let Claudia kick it off, though. And just before she, she steps in here, she has a fantastic video that she put on her Instagram where she encourages people to put themselves out there and and that they got this. It sounds like she had a very positive experience, but don't take it from me. Uh, Claudia, how was your experience? Yeah, so I did this actually yesterday. I went on a bit of a longer run, so a two-hour, you know, constant run. So got some miles in. And at some point when I was getting pretty tired, I actually started high-fiving some people and cheering them on and they were very responsive and it was kind of interesting because I actually started running faster maybe there was like an adrenaline or maybe it was just like we were having a good time and you kind of forgot about like the pain of actually like putting in those miles so it was really entertaining I mean I did it throughout the run and I didn't always get the same response I got like a little like okay but for overall overall people were into it and they were like trying to high five me and it was it was fun so but I will say it was a two-hour run, so eventually that pen ink started coming out. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, it was fun. It was like another way of just like, I think it's like such a testament to how much a mental game running is. Yeah. And when you can kind of like break up the run in different ways that are fun, it's just a benefit to you. So I, I'm just going to like think about that. Like I know on race day, it's going to have like a lot of good energy at the start. So trying to find like ways during the race to kind of like, get that energy back up might be a fun way. I might, I might use that trick actually. No, I love that. I think that you bring up a really good point. I recently also played mind games on my long distance run. I have a little game that I play in my head where I will, if I hear someone coming up behind me at a reasonable pace, I'll make it a little harder for them to overtake me and I'll actually speed up. So it's like, haha, I'm going to make this a little a bit of a challenge for you, even though they, of course, are none the wiser to what's going on. Actually, they probably wonder why I suddenly spit up. But it's it's a good way for me to repace myself, challenge myself, and play a game in my head. So I love the mental games. Though I must say, the you got this on the hand. Now I can see why you wanted that to be a punishment. Uh, this was uh, quite nerve-wracking, I absolutely must say. I, I was, like, super excited to do it. Then actually... 
getting the gall to raise your hand and high five an absolute stranger. And just for our listeners, if you think about it, when you're running, you're in the zone. So a lot of these people you can see are in their heads, in the zone, and suddenly this man with like this half smile, a little sweaty, is running at you with his hand up. You can't read that fast. So he's got weird words on his hand and he's coming at you. And so I had to just kind of pump myself up and like show that I'm just encouraging them. So I did, and then like be like, oh, you got this. And then reach my hand out for a high five. So that being said, only one person flat out ignored me. The other people did high five me back. But a lot of it was, as you said, a little bit of confusion as to (laughs) is a plank? Is there a hidden camera? Like, I'll be nice and do it. Then the last thing I want to say on that as well is I, I kind of used group think mentality to help get more responses. So I made sure when I high five people, there was like a line of people, like five, right? So if the first person high fives you, then the other ones are more likely to follow, even though they might think otherwise. I was strategic when I kind of cheered people on. I did it from a distance initially. So they like had time to process. And I mostly interacted with females that looked like they were not happy with their run. (laughs) (laughs) They understood where I was coming from. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had to definitely play my cards very safe when it came to approaching females again. I understand that that may be intimidating or weird that way. So I was like, okay, I don't want to seem like a creep to the ladies. So I tried to be respectful. But overall, again, with only one person pretending they didn't see me, I think (laughs) it was pretty good success rate. I'm not not mad at all. Well done. Preps. We need a little clap. (laughs) Clap, clap. (laughs) We We did good. And yeah, the only other race update I have is is running a full 16 miles, which is the longest I've run so far. So I'm, I'm super proud of that. And it makes me feel confident once again in, in the race coming up. Yeah, I have a poorly timed uh, vacation. I'm actually heading out tonight, as you know. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to Italy with my mom. So I'm going to have to find creative ways to continue staying running fit since I'll be gone for two weeks. And then only have like another two weeks after that before you know the race so yeah we're getting up there so i've been like researching gyms and like what day passes might cost so that's possibility might do some beach runs so i yeah maybe i'll have some good stories about the runs i take when we're traveling but no planning to keep going i do feel pretty good i've been able to do a half marathon which is like something that i've been nervous about and after doing that i felt Obviously, like I had some time to recover, like I was a little tired, but I recovered pretty quickly and was able to like, you know, within an hour, hop in my car and party all day. So like, I was good. We It's the end of summer. So people have a lot of, thrown a lot of uh, soirees and all those things. So yeah, so I, and I felt good the whole day. So, you know, woke up today, was able to run again, feel good. So that makes me feel more positive than maybe I had been feeling like in previous weeks. So I would say like my mental check, I'm at like, oof, I think it would be higher. But since this trip is coming up, I'm a bit nervous. So I'm going to say I'm like at a six and a half or a seven. But I'm just going to keep those positive thoughts. I know that when we were talking before with a previous guest, they mentioned like suicide thoughts of a runner before a race comes up and how like those negative thoughts start creeping in. You're like, I can't do this. Like, I just have to remind myself that, you know, hey, like I am in really good shape. 
Um, it's just a matter of continuing keeping that up and keeping a positive attitude. So that's what I'm going to strive to do. No, I love that. I am very excited to hear about what running routes or what plan you are able to come up with in Italy. So please keep it posted on that. I'll be definitely checking in on you. In terms of numbers, I would say I'm at a, like an eight and a half or a nine. The gel packs that I've been eating during the race have just been a game changer and have given me so much energy for these runs. So I'm looking forward to it. But I think someone that can take us both to a 10 right now is our guest for today on the podcast, uh, who I'm super excited to talk to. So let's hear from him. I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, Scott Parkinson. Uh, we actually met while I was cycling with my partner across the U.S. up in Yellowstone. And it was pretty exciting meeting him because, so he goes under the social media name Park Pilgrimage. And his whole scope when I met him was cycling to every single national park in the greater 48 states. And so we have him to talk about his journey and like the lessons that he learned while he was out there for, what was it, Scott, 18 months? 18 months, 18,000 miles. Wow. Nice round numbers. 1818. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, technically 18,009. Not that I was counting. No, every mile counts. No, yeah. Definitely. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> You're all the credit. <laughs> We're counting all of our 26 miles, so you should definitely count the 18,000. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, so we usually like to play a game. Trenis, do you want to introduce it? Um, yeah, absolutely. So this is just a little game that we like to play to get to know our guests a little better. And it's called... That's a stretch, otherwise known as two truths and a lie. So the way this works, Scott, is you're going to tell us two things that are true about you and one lie. And Claudia and I have to figure out which one is the truth and which one is the lie. Just a little heads up. Wait till both of us guess before giving away the answer. But I'm going to hand it over to you. What is your two truths and a lie? Hey, my two truths and a lie are I've been lost at sea. I've been stung by a jellyfish. And I can fence with the samurai sword. Okay, two of those are water-related. So I feel like one of them was pulled off of the first. So I'm going to say you were, in fact, lost at sea. And I'm really hoping the samurai thing is true because that's just really cool so i'm gonna say the lie here is that you're stung by a jellyfish Claudia, what do you think yeah so scott and i've had a few conversations so i have a pretty good idea of one truth for sure but i will also go with the jellyfish sting so usually we put stakes on this scott we have we didn't do it this time but okay you're right it was jellyfish i have been lost at sea and I'm testing for my third degree black belt in kendo, which is fencing with the samurai sword this February. We can have two separate episodes exclusively on each of those items, Scott. 100%. <laughs> I really want to dive in. Okay, I'll only ask one question on the samurai swords. What's the safety there? How do you fence while not, you know? We wear full suits of armor. It's Japanese bogu uh -huh. armor. It weighs about 60 pounds. And it's got the traditional, you know, dress, the big, it's a pleated skirt that you wear. So it's, it's very traditional. There's not a lot of Westerners that do it. Mm. I will say, Scott, I can kind of relate very, very limitedly, but I did do, I did practice kendo at one point 
when I did went to a, a Japanese language camp when I was in high okay. school. So I have like yeah. a slight idea of what you do, but probably not to the same degree. <laughs> Between bike touring and kendo, I think those are the two things that make me happy in the world. What do you think it is about bike touring specifically? There's sort of a weird freedom to it, right? You know, because you have everything you need on the bike and you kind of, you're self-sufficient and you're out there doing it. When I was a little kid, you know, I just remember when I finally got a bike, me and my brothers all got bikes for our fifth birthday. And like, until you got a bike, you couldn't ride around the neighborhoods in Chicago with the other kids. So you just would watch them. So I remember it was such a big deal to get your bike. And for me, like leaving the one block area of our neighborhood in Chicago was just so awesome. <laughs> just getting out and seeing more of the city. And then I remember once my friend moved away, my best friend moved away and my parents stayed friends with his parents and we would see each other. And then one, about once or twice a month, I'd go over and visit and I was going over to sleep over at his house. And he said he had some really cool thing to do when I got there. When I got there, he'd come up with this idea that we would bike back to our, my house. Like I would take his brother's bike and the two of us would bike. And we got hopelessly lost and it took us way longer than we ever thought it would. But we finally made it back. Like some lady in a shop drew us a hand-drawn map and we followed it. And, you know, we got back and our parents were freaked out because they thought we were dead because we were gone for hours and hours. And we didn't tell anybody what we were doing. And to me, it was like the most awesome thing in the world. I'm like, because they'd moved like a town away. So like we biked like probably 25, 30 miles and we're like, eight-year-olds on bikes that was just awesome like oh my god there is something about like overcoming like a challenge like that when you're when you're lost like I've had similar situations where I've been lost hiking and it really yeah. like bonds you with that person too oh I yeah think. yeah yeah well this is my best friend to boot too right like so and then you know we both got beatings for it because this was Chicago in the 70s and that was the only exercise parents ever got was beating kids so <laughs> oh, we no, both for it. <laughs> I was also gonna say, I feel like for those that know how to ride bikes, learning how to ride a bike is such a core memory that you have in your head. Like I remember when I was maybe seven and I finally got to take the training wheels off my bike and I like I would always steal my sister's bike because they didn't have training wheels and I'd hold onto the rails just to teach <laughs> myself how to bike without training wheels and when I finally was able to do it without training I was like take them off I can finally do it so it's really cool that you have one of those core memory childhood writing memories as well that yeah. sounds yeah. like a way better way than how I learned how to ride a bike by the way my dad invented a contraption that he attached to my bike and added a like massive broomstick which <laughs> like holds me up like while I was biking which by the way when he lets go like the weight is completely like throwing you off so I ended up in a lot of sticker bushes. I didn't get into biking until my 20s. So. <laughs> so, okay, so you started cycling. You started loving it since you were eight years old. Obviously, really young age. How did you go to getting this idea of cycling to every single national park? Is this like something that like stirred up during COVID? Because I know you were like, you started no. this in 2021 or? Yeah, started in 2021. When I was in fifth grade, we moved to Santa Barbara and lived up in the mountains and my parents bought me a mountain bike and 
that's when I really fell in love with bike riding was just riding the trails on the front side in Santa Barbara growing up. And I had like wanted to tour in high school. I always had this dream of running away and touring through Europe. And I, I ran away. I just never left Santa Barbara. I just, you know, punk rock in the eighties was too much fun to leave in Southern California. So I, uh, I'd gotten into racing mountain bikes really heavily race raced for years. Our college, my college had a, like a club team or something like that that I rode for, which was really fun. And then when I graduated, I went out, I volunteered as a high school teacher out in Micronesia. And when I got back, I'd just been living on an island with the same group of people for a while. And I just needed to see the country. Like I needed to see something other than that little rock. And so I got back and I only had one bike at that time. It was an old cyclocross bike that I, I used to train on. And it didn't have brazons for racks. A buddy of mine owned a shop in Santa Barbara, and he's like, you know, they sell these little trailers you can pull behind a bike. Why don't you get one of those? And so we looked into it, and I got it. It was a, the first generation Burley Nomad trailer. And you'll know on the trip, I was pulling that little Burley Nomad trailer. That wasn't the first generation. I've gone through many of them since then. But so I just took that out, and I originally I was going to bike from Santa Barbara out to the mountains and up to Seattle to see some friends. And I got out to the mountains and it turned out they didn't open the campgrounds in the Sierras until like the middle of June. And so this was like early May or something. So I biked back out to the coast and then I was going to bike up the coast to go see my friends in Seattle. Man, it only took to get into San Francisco biking into that wind every day where I was just like, oh, forget this. This is just miserable. I mean, it's, it's like a 20 mile an hour wind into your face day in and day out. It's just not, it's every single day. That's the reason why everybody goes north to south. <laughs> yeah. And that coast is pretty hilly too. Mm. The, coast, the, the, hilly, the hills aren't bad if you're not into the wind. It's the wind that really makes it bad. And because 99% of the people do the coast north to south because of the wind, where it gets narrow and they've only got enough room for one shoulder, they put the shoulder on the on the southbound side. So a lot of times going north, you won't even have a shoulder, and the coast is a very busy road. So I got to San Francisco, and I was like, F this. This is going to get me killed, and I hate it. Like, I hate biking into the – there was one day, and this was like when I was in the best shape I'd ever been in, where I was like, when I could race, I spent eight hours biking as hard as I could, and I made 40 miles. I mean, it was five miles an hour as hard as I could. And I was just like, this sucks. <laughs> so I got to San Francisco and then I stayed with a friend of mine and I bumped into another old racing buddy of mine while I was there trying to figure out how I was going to get to Seattle. And he's like, well, you got to go to Seattle. Why don't you just do the Transcon? And I was like, uh, then I still got to get up to Astoria. And then he's like, why don't you do the Western Express? And I'm like, what's that? And he told me that there's a spur that goes from San Francisco and hits the Transcon in Pueblo. And what I didn't know was they don't recommend doing that unless you're really experienced. Because it's just brutal climbing. And it's through the heart of all of the American desert. So, like, you go across Highway 50, which is the loneliest highway in America. And there's literally nothing for hundreds of miles. No water, no nothing. But not knowing that I did it. And so I bought the maps and I headed out and I, that was my first transcon. And I just got, I mean, I was instantly hooked. 
I mean, instantly. Like, when I got back, I decided to go to law school because who knew, I didn't know what to do with my life. And I was just kind of kicking the can down the road. So I thought law school would be good. And I took the LSATs, applied. When I found out where I was going, I then told my girlfriend, who was sick of me leaving because we started dating. I went to Micronesia, came back, saw her for a few weeks, biked across country, came back. So I saw her for a couple of weeks. Then I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to have a chance to ride anymore. So I did the Southern Tier. So I I biked from San Francisco down the coast and then did the Southern Tier to San Diego to St. Augustine, Florida, and then took the train back and went to started law school so that was the start that first year in the first six months i did two transcoms in the first six months was it like a difficult transition into i guess long distance riding how did you like build up to the tolerance of saying hey i want to bike up to seattle or i want to bike you know transcontinental when was that aha moment where you're like oh i don't just like riding but like i want to do it and a somewhat more challenging level to do long distance? Well, the dis- it's weird because racing mountain bikes is harder physically, right? Like when they say go, mountain bikes are not like road bikes. Where road bikes, you know, it's like 110 miles, but for like a good portion of it, you're just in the peloton and you're all drafting off each other and you're all at about 60 to 70% effort. And then there may be breakaways and there are a few climbs. But mountain bike, it's they open the gates and everybody goes to 100% and they just do it for like two hours straight. And then, you know, you get to the end and everybody, you just poured everything you had. And the reason is, is a mountain bike is race is one day. Road races are often many days in a row. You could not do that. Like you could not do a mountain bike three days in a row. You'd race, you'd, you'd be exhausted. So, I mean, physically demanding, I think racing would, at least mountain bike racing would be harder. It's the mental game that's different in touring. Because, you know, if you start thinking about all that could be ahead, it could seem daunting. When people ask me, you know, because I host on warm showers, and then I have a blog that's really popular with other cyclists. And when people reach out and ask about it, my, my biggest piece of advice to them is don't overthink it. Like, I never plan anything. Like, when I did that 18,000 mile trip. I didn't, I mean, I had a general route, like where I thought I wanted to go, but like, I didn't know what campgrounds or anything like that kind of stuff. No, you know, I think starting out early using the ACA maps is good for people, but the natural inclination for human beings is to predict bad things, right? It's a good survival technique, right? You know, you want to be ready for the unexpected that might derail things, but that natural inclination can work against you because a lot of people will sit there before their first big ride, be it the West coast or, you know, the trans am or something like that. And they'll in their head, they'll ride 3000 miles, but they'll only be ingesting the bad things that they can envision. Right. So they're just envisioning 3000 miles of misery and pain. And what I tell them is that when you start thinking like that, you're living on a diet of the worst and you're not getting those thousands of moments of wonder and beauty and happiness. And so I say, you know what? Don't overthink it. You'll figure it out. As long as you can ride a bike and you can do more than 10 miles on a bike. I mean, a transcon's not a big thing when it really comes down to it, right? It's not a hard ride. It can, it can have hard days, but 
you know, it's really where your mind is because there'll be days when it's really hot. There'll be days when it's really cold. There'll be days when you get bit by every bug that ever existed. I mean, there'll just be those things. You won't be able to wash your clothes. You'll be eating out of dollar stores and gas stations. And, you know, you'll just have these things and that can wear on you. And that's the part I think, as long as you're relatively healthy, you got to remember when they first did the Trans Am, you know, when it was before it became adventure cycling and it was, what was it? A bike centennial, you know, when they did it in 76, you see the bike there, they were riding in cut off jeans and heads and t-shirts on bikes with 10 gears. And they weren't geared like touring bikes. They were 10 speeds. Right. And, and they did it in those. And I'm like, if, if somebody can ride across the U S in cut off jeans and, uh, on a, 1969 Schwinn bike. I can do it on a on a surly disc trucker that's designed just for it, and I have all of the best gear. I mean, and I've always toured alone. The you know the only time I had anybody with me was for the first 3,000 miles of my Parks Pilgrimage project. You know, if you're alone, you you've got to deal with the loneliness. The you know, there's a lot of little things that can creep into your head. It's interesting. So yeah, I think it's more the mental game than it is the physical game. And not that you don't get stronger as you ride, like you you have these periods. For me, I noticed it's like a doubling. So like the first two weeks, your body changes a lot, right? Because you gotta used to sleeping on the ground, you gotta get your ass used to sitting on a seat all day, you know? So your body changes and it's getting used to the climbing and the riding and the everything. And after two weeks, you kind of settle in. And then at about a month in, you realize you're kind of in a new gear, right? You got a different gear. You can go a little longer when the days get really hard. You notice you got it. And then like for that next month, you kind of say, and then at about two months, you realize, ah, you know, I've hit this new level at about two months. And then it really kind of, it stays there physically at two months. You're about as good as you're going to, I mean, you're not going to get any stronger. If you've been riding six to seven hours a day for two months, your body's not changing. It'll change a little bit more. I mean, you'll get a little more comfortable being on the road. You'll get, you know, depending on, you know, like when I went to the Appalachians, it was it was like 30 days and it was like 76,000 feet of climbing and it was all in the rain. It rained for 30 days straight in the Appalachians. I did change. I mean, my body got stronger during that period and that was almost a year in. But it was simply just because of that. Because I crisscross. I mean, it's like I snake through the Appalachians because of where the parks are in them. I can't even imagine cycling the Appalachians in the rain like that. I'm just like thinking of my own experience of like being chased uphill by dogs all the time. I don't know if you had that problem, Scott. But in the rain or like not having great visibility, that sounds kind of scary and you're kind of like pretty alone in a lot of those sections. Yeah, I didn't do like a route like the Trans Am, which you at least know the roads there, right? Mm-hmm. Like Google, Google I either was trying to kill me or every once in a while I would just get drunk and give me weird directions. But like I'd be biking down a road and the road would just end. Oh. Like I'd be on a dirt road for like 15 miles and then it would just end. And I'd be like, well, what do I do now? Well, what do you do in that situation? Do you just turn around? Do you make your own path? Well, one time 
it ended at a washed out bridge. I just took everything off the bike, climbed down the cliff, then carried everything across the river over my head and climbed up the other side because I could see the road like 250 yards past the other side of the river. So I did that. Yeah, a couple times you're just like, oh, did it turn around, go back? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of times when I was in the Appalachians, I was just on little dirt roads out in the middle of nowhere, just old coal and um, logging roads. And so it was just, you know, and, and sometimes it would just get down to a single track. And I'm pulling this trailer that ain't single track worthy. You know, it's got two wheels and it's it's off the single track. And I'm, you know, climbing up a ridge line in a thunderstorm, getting just beaten by hail and just going, well, this wasn't my best day. What do you like say to yourself in those moments to kind of like, I don't know, keep yourself calm and level-headed? You know, I never really thought I was going to die on this trip except for maybe two, two or three times. Like where I thought, oh, yeah, today might be my last day. And those were all because of heat. Like mm-hmm. I got out in the middle of nowhere and it was 108 and it got hot a lot faster than I thought it would be. And it's like on an exposed climb or something like that. On ones like that, I just realized, you know, you got everything you need on it. Like, if it got really bad, I would have just found a flat piece of grass and set up my tent, ridden out the storm, and just pushed on after the storm went away. But, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you're wet. You're already wet. You're moving. You might as well just keep going. Eventually, things got to get better. I mean, unless you die, and then that's, it's a good story, right? You're going to go. It's better than dying like the king, right, on the toilet. <laughs> true, true. That's true. It'll be much more exciting when people tell it to each other. But still, you don't want to get there. There was like a few moments after we met you. Like we were out in Missouri. And I remember I was getting really nervous. Like the weather was really bad. There was lightning. I started crying. I was like, we're going to die. And then Adriel would shout at me and he'd be like, are you going to die in the next five minutes? And I was like, I don't know. I guess not. And he's like, keep pedaling. (laughs) But like, I can't imagine like having that conversation solo with myself, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I've been touring. So I did my first year, I did the Western Express and Trans Am and the Southern Tier. And then my first summer in law school, I ended up in Alaska and I did a lot of touring through Alaska. And then between my second and third year in law school, I biked from Seattle down to Mexico on the coast. And then when I graduated, I didn't tour for six years because I worked at St. Louis University and then at NYU. But when I left NYU, I did the northern tier. I biked out of the city, up to Hudson, caught the northern tier at Ticonderoga, and then took that to Seattle. And then I didn't tour for like two years, a year and a half. And I did the Sierra Cascade route, you know, up the Sierras and Cascades up. And then I was having so much fun when I got up to the top that I biked out to the coast and biked back down again because I was enjoying it so much. And then when I was at Tulane University, when I quit there, I biked up the Mississippi and then around the Great Lakes from New Orleans up the Mississippi and around the Great Lakes. So I'd had like seven major tours before this one, the one that I met you on. And it was like somewhere in, I think it was probably the Northern Tier. Mm-hmm. Because in the Northern Tier, you go through Glacier and you go through North Cascades. And, you know, I'd been through a couple other national parks 
on my other routes. And I just thought, oh, it's really cool. And then, you know, some, somewhere the idea of like, wouldn't it be fun to bike to all of them, like nonstop, like just, just get on your bike and just start doing it. And the idea sort of floated around in my head for a couple of years. And then around about, around about COVID, it really started to solidify. You know, we're all stuck inside. We got nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And so I was working at a medical school at the time for the University of Arizona, and we got really busy, you know, because we were doing all this medical research on, you know, what COVID was. And, and so, like, I would literally work all day, every day, but then I had nothing else to do. So, like, in the morning, I, you know, I was living in Arizona, I'd get up and I'd go for, like, a 30-mile ride, and then I'd work all day, and then I'd get home and i have a rowing machine, and I'd row in the evening. And that's when I was like, you know, and this is over. I'm just going like when we're, when they finally let us out of, out, like, I'm just, I'm doing the trip that I wanted to. And I was talking to a buddy of mine and he was like, you know, you, why don't you raise some money for some cause? Cause you know, I'm sure you had it when you did yours, people, are you doing it for something? You know, they ask all the time, you know, are you, are you, you know, are you, you raise money for something and all my other ones, I'm like, no, just do it. You know? And then I always kind of felt guilty, like, I should be doing it for something, right? Like, maybe I should have been doing it for something. So then I thought, well, maybe I will do it for something. And so then I approached the uh, National Parks Foundation and asked them if they'd be interested in it. And they got on board. They're like, oh, yeah, you raised money for us? Sure. <laughs> and so we worked together. They set up a web page for it. And then I was talking to a friend, and I was telling him about it. And he goes, well, how are you going to raise the money? And I said, well, I got my blog. It's pretty popular. And uh, he's like, nobody reads anymore. <laughs> he's like, that ain't going to generate any traction. And I go, what do, you, what do you recommend? And he said, you need video. Mm. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't like. I'm like, no. And he's like, yeah, that's the only way. And then after a while, I realized he was right. And I was talking to him. And I'm not good with anything technological. I was talking to a friend of mine and I was saying, you know, I, I need to get somebody who can follow along and do all of the video stuff for me. And I'll just cover their costs. As long as they do the video and the editing and everything, I'll cover, you know, I'll get them a bike and I'll cover it for them. And she's like, well, I'll do it. Hmm. I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah. And it turned out, which I did not know, she had a degree in video production. And she's just an amazingly, I mean, she had like, like hike through New Zealand and hike through like Tibet and stuff. She'd never biked toward before. So we agreed and we planned and she moved out to Arizona a couple of like a month or two before we left and she started training on the bike and then we left together. And she was doing all the, the video for the trip. And I gotta give her credit, man. Like your first bike trip, eighteen thousand miles, that's a bike. Yes, woman. She was like, "Okay, yeah. let's go." Yeah, I, 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 I and then it turned out that her and biking were not good friends. Hmm. Like she did, there were things about biking she did not like. And you know, I tried like Mister Salesman to like make her see how wonderful bike riding was, and it, it's just not for some people, right? Like she hated the traffic that went by. You know, she she's used to hiking on trails where you're alone in the woods and there's solitude. And you, she hated all the trash on the side of American roads, right? Like, 
man, you don't know how many piss bottles are on the sides of American roads until you bike across our country. And then you're like, what the fuck is wrong with people? Right? Like, Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of them. Claudia can probably back me up on this. Gosh, I don't... I was just like so focused and not getting hit by cars very often. So I can like really resonate with that piece. Oh, and yeah. then all the roadkill. Like it gets yeah. weird. Like, you like, you can start smelling the roadkill and at a certain point you like know what animal it is before you yeah. see it. Oh. Like it's weird. You think you do. I've, I've seen some ones that, so those were her three big complaints, garbage, traffic, yep. and roadkill. Right. I just want to insert real quick as someone who is very unsure where piss bottles come from. Is this is this people in their cars that yeah, don't want to stop they, and throw it out? What yeah, is they pee, the source? Yeah. yeah, they pee in bottles and then they just chuck them onto the side of the road and you just see like Pepsi bottles and stuff filled, half filled with yellow liquid and you know what it is. Uh, I mean, and you know what? If you're going to pee in your car, one, gross, grow up, you're an adult. Two, if you do do that, keep it in your goddamn car. Don't chuck it out the window. Literally just I mean, wait till you get somewhere. Yeah, yeah wait till you get somewhere. And then don't throw a half-filled bottle of pee into a garbage can. Pour it out somewhere and then put the then put it in recycling, you fucking monster. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, there's a lot of it around the country. So those are her three things. But back to roadkill just briefly. Uh, on this trip i saw a bear roadkill no yes a full-grown bull roadkill and an alligator roadkill whoa (laughs) okay that beats beats the armadillos we Ah. saw what are you talking about wait a grizzly or a brown bear Uh, uh, a black bear Poor baby like a grown like oh yeah it was good size was probably a two or three hundred pound bear it was up in the Redwoods. Yeah. Wow. Le- leaving Arcata. About 30 miles out of Arcata, just as you're going back into the Redwoods, there's a black bear roadkill on the side of the road. That's wild. <laughs> I know, it was wild. I got a picture of it. That was what, like one of the few roadkills I've taken a picture of. I that and the alligator. <laughs> Scott, I, I also wanted to ask you, you've mentioned your blog. And for our listeners, uh, Scott also has an amazing Instagram page with 6,000 followers. So if you'd like to follow him, he's Parks Pilgrimage on Instagram. And you've had news articles written about you. And now you're on this amazing podcast in it for the long run. Like, <laughs> how, how are you dealing with all this, like, publicity and popularity? Because I feel like at this point, you're kind of like the go-to guy for tour biking. Like, what's it been like getting all this attention? Uh, surprisingly, I don't get that much attention at all. And in fact... Claudia can probably back me up on this. And I had somebody tell me this when I was in Micronesia. Is you go through this very, very transformative thing to you, right? Like, it's intense. So, like, when Claudia biked across the country and did the Trans Am, when I was down in Micronesia, you know, it's intense. Like, even though it's only four months of your life or three months of your life or whatever it is, those are like dog years, right? Like you've lived more in those little, so you do it, but then 
my friend in, in, in Micronesia, he was one of the other teachers. He was older. He had volunteered for two years when he was like in his twenties. Now he was in his sixties and he was volunteering for two years again at this school out in the middle of friggin' nowhere. And he said, just, and it, it was right before I went home and he said, Scott, just, I want to tell you this, just get ready. Everybody's going to be interested in what you have to say for about two days. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they're sick of hearing about your stories about the island. And it's true about bike trips also, right? So everybody's like, oh, my God, you've been away for two months. And then they want to hear it. And then after the first time they hear it, they're like, oh, no, you told me about your bike trip. I don't need to hear about it anymore. And you just keep wanting to talk about it, right? Because, I mean, in that period that you did the bike trip, so much happened to you. It was such a big event in your life. And you just, and they're like, no, we're past that, man. Yeah, I know. You, You did your little bike thing. You're done. That's cool. It's like that no matter what. It's, you know. And in fact, at one point, so Claudia can, she can back me up on this. When you tell somebody you're on a bike trip, just first they see your bike in their gear and they come up to you and they go, you know, where are you going? And then you tell them, they're like, oh, you're going across country, huh? And then, you know, and then the next thing after you hear you're done. Um, and then you tell them no. And then well, what do you do? Something, somebody uh, weird comes at you. You get these same set of questions, right? And you get used to answering them. So I, you always get to where you're going. And then I would tell them, how long you been out? And, the, you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, whatever, a month, two months, four months, five months. There, there was a point around the nine or ten months where the look went from, wow, that's really impressive, to the look where they're about to say, run, Forrest, run. <laughs> like, you've left the realm of, like, that's cool and normal to – you're now in the run force run category, right? Like, and I, that was about nine or 10 months in. So it's like, once I went past that people, like it, it stopped being impressive. And it seems so a lot of people seem more crazy than anything. And so that's really been my overwhelming reaction. Like, oh, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I can definitely back you up on there. It, it really depends who you talk to, right? Because even though we only went for what, three almost four months you know some people are really excited about it and some people yeah. just don't get it they're like why would you do that like are you okay <laughs> like yeah. Did yeah. you talk to somebody you know <laughs> like I am curious Scott though like you know you kind of talk about how you have this like kind of profound experience for me there was something in like the simplicity of that day in of day out just I wake up I know what I'm doing like my goals are very clear for that period of time Versus like in life, I don't know, I feel like sometimes things are a little bit more chaotic from the day to day, like now that we're back. Like, how do you like transition from cycling for 18 months back into like, kind of, I guess what I'll say, like day to day, like normal society, like how did that impact you and how did you kind of adjust? Yeah, it's always weird coming back in from tour. Like you said, it's a different existence, right? It, your your life narrows down to a search for three things, right? Where can I take a crap? Where can I get food? Where can I sleep? That's really pretty much your life, right? And there's a real, real calming, almost zen joy to it, right? There's just, you're always in this sort of moment where you're just taking in you're living it and there's not a million outside distractions to your life right i mean 
you become much more attuned to your immediate surroundings. I mean, when you live in nature for, you know, as many months as I did, like nature becomes really important, right? Like we forget that we've, we spend our entire lives controlling everything around us. So it's exactly I want it, right? I want it to be 69 degrees, no humidity. I like these little comfy slippers on my feet at night. And I love this little blanket and everything is just the exact way. And then what do we do? We complain that our lives never change, right? We spend our entire time controlling our environment so it doesn't change. And then we can comp- we complain that it changes. Um, but when you go out and you, you actually do change and you get out there, you realize it doesn't take long, maybe a week before you really become much more attuned to being in nature. Like, because wind, wind will change your day. A rainstorm will change your day. Heat will change your day. Cold. Will, these things have a much more immediate impact on you. And, and so you start really living in the moment that you're in. And you can't, you know, you can't change it. Like, I can't turn the heat up if it gets cold in my tent. I can't. So, you know, you, you can't eat. Even if you know it's going to get hot tomorrow, there's no point in worrying about it because you can't change it. Right? There's nothing you can do. So you, you, you tend to get more and more and more situated in the, in, the, in the immediate moment. And then when you get back to normal life, it's hard because all the distractions of normal life kind of come rushing back in again. And so, you know, it's like, you got to get a job. You got to talk to people. I got to talk to people I'll see again tomorrow. So even if I'm rude to them, I got to see them again tomorrow. So I should probably not say the rudest shit in the world if I don't feel like talking to them. So you've got to deal with all that stuff. And then on top of that, it's like, normally from coming in, to, to, in from a tour, it's hard. 18 months, it was real. It was much difficult, much more difficult this time because my body and my mind had really changed this time. And, you know, I, so I wore a Garmin watch a phoenix something or another mm-hmm. so that it would track my route so people could follow it and but it, one of the things that it is it tracked my calories and i burned between five and seven thousand calories a day for 18 mm-hmm. months so you know i got used to just stop moving start eating stop moving start eating and when you get off the road you can't do that because one you're not moving that much and two you know, I put on like 15 pounds in like the month at first month I was back. Cause I was just like, I'm nom, 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 nom. And you have a refrigerator. You can buy ice cream and you can keep things cold and you know, you can buy a lot. You can't buy just enough for a day because it weighs too much. And so, you know, it, it was just it, it, adjusting to the sort of normal modern daily life again was difficult. And then my body had changed, so like it's always saying it's hungry, and I'm like, you're not hungry. We didn't do anything today, and it's like, no, I'm hungry. It's ten o'clock in the morning. We should be having our third breakfast by now, and you're like, no, we shouldn't. We didn't do anything. <laughs> so that was sort of the the hard part, and then, but you know, I mean, it's it's just part of coming in off the road. You know, it's I would never. I would never not tour because you don't like ending it, right? What's your next journey then after this? Do you have any other tours on the horizon? Would you perhaps bike outside of the U.S.? So I've got a couple of tours. The next one that I would 
do probably I want to bike through Japan, start Hokkaido, then go all the way down to Kyushu, and then take the ferry over to Busan, and then there's a bike trail that goes from Busan up to Seoul. Maybe do that on my summer vacation next year for work. And then after I've got a couple of years of work under my belt, or retire, (laughs) the next big one, I think, will either be the Prudhoe Bay to Ushaya, you know, so it's the entire North and South America ride, or just do around the world. Around the world. Just yeah, knock it all yeah. out. Yeah, Scott, just start. I'll be following you. <laughs> I'm expecting some big things. So those are the ones that are, that are still like on my bucket list because I pretty much hit most of the ones in the U.S. that I've ever wanted to do. So Japan, I'd imagine, is really, really pretty. Yeah, I bike through Can. I bike through areas of Canada. I mean, a lot of Canada is still like a lot, like a lot of America. I kind of want a little more, you know. Not so much variety in terrain, it's variety in culture. Hmm. You know? And going to Japan, that kind of marries your both of your interests with kendo or a oh, Japanese yeah. sword fighting and, yeah. and cycling. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, and I know a lot of people in Japan. And plus, I've been told by a lot of people that bike touring in Japan is an absolute blast. You can camp everywhere, you don't have to worry about anything being stolen everybody's nice they'll bring everybody will invite you to their house and so and that's one i can do while still being employed i gotta stop putting my job every two or three years and disappearing on a bike (laughs) and if someone does try to steal something from you you're a black belt with a sword so good luck to them But I think that's all the questions I have. Claudia, do you have anything else before you transition into what's in your backpack? Scott, I feel like we could talk to you for hours, but yeah, let's uh, let's do our next segment. It's been so great, you know, talking to you and learning about this specific experience that you've had. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend anybody doing it. The one thing I would say is on a big trip like that, though even a smaller one, like the Trans Am or something, you're going to have you're going to have bad days, right? And a friend of mine once told me when he was walking, he hiked the Appalachian Trail. And he said when he was hiking the Appalachian Trail, a guy who had done it, who had done all three of them, the Appalachian, the Pacific Crest, and the Continental Divide, had told him that if you want to quit, hike 100 more, more miles. And if you still want to quit at that point, then quit Mm. so and that's about five days of walking and what he was saying is everybody's going to have a couple of bad days don't let one bad day keep you from accomplishing what you want to do so i would tell people when you're on a trip like this you can have a bad day you might even have a bad week i had a bad month in the appalachians but you know you you just gotta you, you got to realize that, you know, one, going home, you're just going to have bad days there too, right? It's, you're putting a lot, you're investing a lot of emotion into something that probably is going to be as bad wherever else you are, right? If it's the weather, the weather's going to change. If it's, you know, whatever, you're sick, the sickness is going to get better. If it's just you're lonely, you'll probably be lonely at home. You know, your friends are going to ignore you. They want to hear about your trip. So, I mean, seriously, like, 
don't quit just because it gets hard. There are legitimate reasons, injuries, or you really are are miserable. A, a lot of misery is just really it's transitory and it's only a day or two. And because we all get down, we have those moments where we're just like, what? you know, you get up and you, it's, you know, you, you hear the rain on your tent. You're like, what? No, you know, and then you're like, when I went to bed, it said no rain tomorrow, right? And then it's just, <laughs> then you look and it changes like, oh, rain all day today, right? And you're just like, oh, man. So you just got to get past that. So I would just tell people that the hardest thing about touring, especially a big, big, big trip, is getting your head into the right space. And for me, it's not over planning it because if I start envisioning all the problems, that's all I'm thinking about. And I'm not seeing all the joy. And so what you really have to, me, I literally did not figure out where I would ride, like not even where I would, like what road, what road, until the night that I would get in. I'd get in that night, get in my tent, and then I'd be like, all right, I used a couple of apps. I used some maps. I used I used a few of the just regular road maps. I used some adventure cycling maps. And then I used, there's an app called All Stays Camp and Tent. Mm-hmm. and I would get on that and I'd just look for, you know, what do I feel like I can do tomorrow? Okay, I, I feel like 60 to 70 is going to be good. Then I'd start looking in the 60, 70 mile range in the rough direction that I would be going and then see if I could find some campgrounds out there. And if I could, then with all stays, you can just pick the campground and send it to Google Maps and Google Maps will do a bike route for you. And then I would follow that. But like, I wouldn't overthink it because maybe I get into tent in the camp that night and I've got no gas left in the tank. And I'm like, Oh, tomorrow's going to be 30 miles, 40 miles at max. You know, I want to be able to do it by the way my body feels. And so I just never planned too much. And I just sort of went with it every day, just went to the next place. And I think for me, that's the way not to let my mind sort of outthink me because our minds are really, really good at trying to get us to stay on the couch. And they're wonderful because they know us inside and out. They know all of our, our weak points and they know all of like, ooh, say this to us, you know, make his ankle hurt or make his something hurt. And, you know, and then, you know, play on all of these things. It's, it's a way to keep your mind from being able to work against you, right? Because if you give them a bunch of demons, it's going to dress them up and feed them back to you, right? And so if you keep from putting too much fodder into your brain for it to turn around on you, you have less to deal with. And so every day it was just, well, I'm biking for one day today. And then, you know, that there just happened to be, you know, almost 600 of those in a row. But, you know, it really was just one day at a time, one day at a time, one day at a time. And, you know, and I gave myself the option of quitting whenever I wanted. That's definitely been the running theme, I'd say, in a lot of our episodes is that mental game. So I feel like that's kind of a really good takeaway. It's just getting yourself in the the right mental space. But yeah, Scott, 18,000 miles, 18 months. This section of the podcast is called What's in Your Backpack. During that entire trip, what were three things that you felt like you had to have with you at all times? Yeah. (laughs) It's funny because you get asked your questions all the, all the time when you're out on the road. And I think I constantly disappointed people with my gear, what, what my responses were, because like everybody's got a tent and I don't, you know, whatever your tent is, that's cool. That's great. It's a tent. 
Like, I'd be more interested if a guy goes, I don't carry a tent. I just sleep on the ground. I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, if a guy says, I got a tent in my bag, I'm like, oh, surprise, surprise. So when people ask me, like, what's the best piece of gear you got? And the absolute best thing, and I told everybody about this on the Sea to Summit clothesline. Holy good God. It weighs one ounce, and it strings up onto anything. One ounce, and it has the built-in clothespins, so you can hang your clothes. And when you're washing your clothes in sinks every night and drying them out, so I had two pair of shorts, two pair of riding jerseys, and three pair of socks. So you're washing every night. So that thing, and it packs down to the size of a golf ball. So, and it weighs one ounce. So I had two of them. I could string them together so I could get that across any tree. You could hang it up on trees. You could hang it up on anything. So that was one. I don't even know where I saw it. And I was just like one of those weird impulse buys and I bought it. And then the next thing I know, I'm like, this is the most awesome thing in the world. Then I found one. Somebody had left at a camp shelter on the Katy trail. So that's when I ended up with two of them. And then I'm like, Oh, two is even better. Cause now there was nothing I couldn't string it up to. Right. But when they're hooked to each other, my other one was a Kindle. I have to read. I read every day and I read a lot. So my Kindle was definitely something. And then, I know the third item, it'd either be my solar panel or my Helionox chair. Is that a solar panel to just charge things or? Yeah. 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 Cause I had a lot of, cause I was filming, I was working for the, I was still doing work for the university at night in my tent. And then, you know, I had my phone and then like all my lights and everything were rechargeable. They weren't like, you didn't put batteries in them. So everything needed power. And I just had a like a little 21 watt anchor solar panel that I like figured a way to rig it. So it just spat on my trailer all day long. And just all day long, it just caught sun. I mean, I never ran out of power in 18 months. I mean, that thing was great. And then I have a little dynamo hub with a, a sine wave inverter beacon light. And so the back of the light's also a charger. But that thing maybe at best, if I was flying down the road, it could do maybe a quarter, if a quarter, of what that solar panel could do. That solar panel could charge up a couple of batteries in a few hours. So, or that, or like I said, the Helionox chair, because I could gut through anything for two or three months, right? Like, but 18 months, like, it's kind of nice not to sit on your ass the whole time on cold ground or wet ground or whatever. Just like having a chair. You know, just certain things. So I had a little more weight in my pack than I normally did. But, like, I was spending 18 months, right? So it's like you got to have some comforts, right? Like, you, you can't just – like, I normally never tour with a stove, right? I, I just – it's just tuna fish, pretzels, and cereal, right? Like, so – I'd love to see what's inside your backpack. It sounds very MacGyver-esque where there's – Clotheslines and there's seats and there's solar panels. There's just a whole bunch well, of stuff. Instagram, I'm slowly making videos of the gear that worked and didn't work. So, Wait, yes, to our, our listeners, again, if you'd like to follow Scott, he's on Parks Pilgrimage uh, on Instagram. Also, if you would like to donate to his cause, you can go to give.nationalparks.org. They can do it through the Instagram page. If mm -hmm. they click, at the top, the link to the National Parks Foundation is still there. It's still open. And if you donate through my page, I negotiated with them because that's what I do for a living. I negotiate with foundations 
for universities. I negotiated with them. So all the money that's raised through my project is put into a restricted account and can only be used for conservation. So you're guaranteed that it's going to be used for conservation. And our parks are right now in, they're really in a, in a, a state of need. Climate change is working a number on them and we're not funding them well. I mean, the Joshua trees no longer grow in the Southern part of Joshua Tree National Park because it's too warm for it now. And they say within 50 years, they won't grow in the park at all unless they figure something out, right? Or think about, you know, the summer that 2021, Lassen National Park was closed all summer because of a fire. 69% of the fire burned that year. From bug infestations to you name it, our national parks are facing the biggest challenge they've ever faced since we started them over a hundred years ago. And we are not increasing the funding. Firefighting at our parks comes out of their annual budget. They get no extra money for that. So they need the money. Scott, I should have you come and chat about that over at the Sierra Club. Anyways, I'll I'll talk I'll talk to you about it later. But yeah. we should get it, we should go on a bike ride. If you need someone yep. to help film, I'm gonna be going to film school soon. So maybe really? I can practice with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that? bar in chicago that Tranos has to go to monkey paws the monkey's paw in the monkey's paw okay um listeners you know where to find me over those coming weekends uh i will be at <laughs> monkey's paw <laughs> tell my little brother you that i sent you he'll give you a free drink oh wait what's his name it's matt okay matt parkinson all right i'll i'll uh i'll let him know yeah he'll be there big tall guy balls <laughs> can't miss them yeah <laughs> thank you again so much scott this has been such a pleasure i'm so glad we got to reconnect yeah yeah and we definitely should ride especially before the rain comes yeah definitely i'll message you i'll message you. I'm, I'm, I'm actually heading out of town for a couple weeks but let's get something on the books for early october all right i'll talk to you guys soon bye. all right bye right, thanks scott well, it was really cool talking uh, to Scott today. He sounds like he's had like so many adventures and like lived so many lives. And I feel like I, I agree with you. I could have talked to him like all day. I would say my biggest takeaway from chatting with him, however, is kind of something you've heard in the past is, is kind of having that positive mental attitude. It's interesting to hear that no matter where he was in his journey, he was always looking forward to all the positives that were coming up. And that's something I've been concerned about is taking this amazing route through Southern Utah and not being able to really enjoy it, but just wishing it was over. And so I'm going to kind of keep that in my back pocket and to enjoy it as I go along. Yeah. The biggest takeaway I probably had was our conversation about remaining present, which kind of relates to, I think your takeaway a little bit, Trenos, you know, you talked about, like when he was cycling, you know, in the Appalachians, it was pouring and there were other areas where he was going through extremely hot desert and you don't have control to change those circumstances. And, you know, for much, you know, we're like a much smaller time period, but we don't have like necessarily a lot of control. You know, it might be start out cold in the morning, it might get hot. So I think just like trying to be present in that moment and just really like, get that focus to just keep going and like be in it and not worry about 
the miles that, you know, we ran and the miles we have to go and how tired we are, but just like being right there. So I know that's something I've been doing in my runs already, doing a lot of like breathing exercises, because for some reason I get like mentally, like when I think about like after running like an hour, when I start thinking about like, wow, you already ran an hour, you ran like six, seven miles. Like, how can you keep going? Like my brain is like telling me like, oh, like, I don't know. I don't know. Even though I feel like physically fine. And so I've been like trying to take really deep breaths just to like calm my mental like psyche. And that does help me be really present too. So Mm. I think that that was kind of, I really related to that. Yeah. I love that. I think that's, I find that very fascinating as well. Finding that internal Zen during this moment of, you know, internal stress and panic, especially when I guess we're going to have a lot of runners around us too. I wish I had the opportunity to practice in an actual race environment, which I have not, but that's okay. But yeah, finding that internal Zen is a, is a really good takeaway. That's all we have for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to In It For The Long Run once again. And we hope to hear again from you soon. Good chatting with you, Claudia. Yeah. Looking forward to catching up when I'm back in Seattle. And you'll be back in Seattle. I will be back in Seattle. All Seattle listeners, uh, get ready. I will be in town. Thank you. (laughs)